Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Professor Lance, thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds today. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with you. So let's jump right in. Can you start by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Sure, and thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation with you today. My name is Paula Lance. I'm a professor in the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan, where I also am the director of our undergraduate programs. And I also am a professor of health management and policy in the School of Public Health. Thank you. And in what areas does your research focus? My background training and research is focused on population health science. And I'm sure people wonder what that actually means. So I'm trained both in social demography and social epidemiology. And my work is really focused on the social, economic, and political factors, including public policy that create patterns and inequities in health outcomes within communities and populations. And I also focus on um, health disparities and health inequities within subpopulations, including by race, ethnicity, gender, and socioeconomic status. I'm really interested in um, the factors that produce health and ill health. <laughs> and and I, my work focuses on the, the US. So I'm really interested in factors outside of medical care that are driving overall levels of health within populations and subpopulations. And also, again, the, the shameful and stark inequities we see in health within the United States by race, ethnicity, gender, and, and social class. And um, my work has really come to be very focused on the role of public policy in both creating some of the drivers that create health inequality, but also what's necessary in terms of public policy reform uh, that we need to have done in order to have uh, more uh, equity in terms of health outcomes in the United States. I've been doing this work for a long time. Um, and so the focus of my work has, has changed over my career, but right now I'm really focused on housing issues, uh, housing affordability and housing security issues and how that relates to health. And I'm also very focused right now on abortion policy at the state level. Wonderful, thank you. Can you share with us a bit about your opinion piece titled, The Social Determinants of Declining Birth Rates, Implications for Public Policy and Populational Health? Sure, the main point I wanted to make in this piece is that the same social factors or social determinants that drive population health outcomes like mortality and life expectancy and rates of illness and injury, those same factors are also what drives um, birth rates within a population. Um, and what we've been seeing in the United States for several years now is declining birth rates, which means that more women or people with a uterus um, are choosing to not give birth at all, um, not, not have children, 
and the average number of children that people do have is declining. And so overall birth rates are are going down and they're actually in the United States now below what demographers refer to as replacement level. And that just means, well, what are the, what's the number of births that need to happen in a population for its size to stay the same net of migration coming in? And so the birth rate in the United States has declined um, to a place where we, um, we will be losing population. Population size will be going down, again, without people um, coming into the country from, from other countries. Um, this is being seen in many other middle and high income countries, but it's um, the rate at which birth rates are declining in the United States is pretty alarming. So one of the, the points that I wanted to make is that birth rates um, are an important indicator of overall population health and also the status of women in a society. So obviously birth rates um, they do come down. Um, we know this from lots of research across a number of countries. Birth rates come down when women's education levels and their labor force participation goes up. That makes that makes a lot of sense. However, you know these really dramatic and fast declines in birth rates um, also reflect a number of factors that um, influence and, in fact, constrain childbearing decisions. So economic conditions influence birth rates, including things like recessions, um, wage levels, the cost of childcare, whether or not people have paid leave, and other economic and opportunity costs of um, being in the labor market. We know that gender and racial wage inequality matters. Um, and then also, I think, you know, young adults are facing a lot of concerns um, that may, uh, we know again from research, um, may have an impact on their decisions about whether or not to have children or how many. And it's things like worried about climate change, um, worried about um, student debt burden, worries about the rising cost of healthcare and housing. Um, so all these, all these, again, social, economic, and political concerns add up to population level phenomenon that we're seeing in, in regard to um, what's going on with, with birth rates. Thank you. As a professor of health management and policy, can you talk a bit about the role of public policy in improving population health and reducing social disparities in health? Sure. Um, I became drawn to um, focus on public policy in my research and teaching pretty early in my career um, for a couple of reasons. One, again, I think um, public policy is what we call sort of a fundamental or upstream driver of all of the social, economic, and political conditions and systems and institutions that matter for health um, and health equity. And also, I think it's, you know, it changes in, in public policy are um, the most efficient way to, to see changes in overall um, health levels in a population. You can't really do it one by one. And I know health is something that's expressed within individual bodies, but um, trying, to trying to change health sort of one person at a time with individual level interventions that takes a long time to add up to really change overall levels and patterns within a population. So public policy is a very 
powerful and again, efficient way to make um, big changes that shift patterns and levels of health within, within populations. So in the, in the United States, I think there's a, a problem where a lot of people sort of equate or conflate health with healthcare, but it turns out that healthcare, so access, having health insurance and having access to individual medical care isn't important, but actually a small contributor to what we see as overall levels of health within the population. So again, it's these things focusing on, you know, um, if I could wave my magic policy wand um, and, um, you know, do things that I think would improve the overall health of the U.S. population and reduce health inequities, it would be, you know, policy would focus on reducing and eliminating child poverty. Uh, it would, again, do things to make housing quality better and more affordable for people. It would focus on um, education quality uh, and food security and, you know, uh, address issues of um, environmental exposures and environmental injustices. I know it's a big, it's a big, uh, a big world of, of issues and areas of public policy that, that matter for health. Thank you. March is Women's History Month. In relation to advancing health policy research, can you discuss the importance of recognizing this observance? Yes, well, I, I think in the year 2023, um, this is really a historic time for women's health in, in the United States. The Supreme Court's uh, recent overturning of um, federally protected access to um, some level of abortion care has created, as we all know, um, sort of a policy free-for-all in all of, all of the states. And so it's my not only my personal opinion, but I also think a lot of re research upholds what I'm going to say is, you know, these policies that are restricting ac access to abortion and many states are um, bringing with them significant threats and harms to women's health um, for, you know, the mechanisms creating that are, are, are many. Um, and then also we know from a lot of research that restrictive abortion policies um, increase the number of children who are born into and live in poverty, uh, increases the number of families who experience serious financial instability and hardship, including needing to file for bankruptcy. Restrictive abortion policies are related to racial inequities and socioeconomic security, and also will put significant additional pressure on what already is under-resourced social welfare systems. So I think from both a, a, a health perspective and also a social welfare perspective, what's happening with um, restrictive abortion policy in the United States right now is very, it's very concerning. And I think, you know, <laughs> focusing on this particular issue of women's health during Women's History Month is very important. Can you provide any ways that people can get involved or learn more about women's health policy, not only this month, but? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there, I mean, there's a, it's a, it's a big, big area, right? Because as I, I've mentioned, health is a reflection of 
social well-being and economic well-being and political well-being. And so people who are interested in women's health um, are likely interested in a very, very wide um, arena of social, economic, and political, as well as healthcare issues. And so I, I would recommend um, two things, and these are a bit more general than just, again, focusing on women's health policy, but I would recommend to people to, you know, make sure that you do your homework um, and, you know, are well-informed on issues besides little snippets you might see on social media. A lot of these issues are complex. There's long histories to them. So, you know, make sure you, you do your homework. And also, you know, there are people who are elected to offices who are making really important decisions for all of us. And so also do your homework on who's running for um, offices. Um, and this doesn't, it, this goes way beyond just the, the people running for, you know, legislative offices at the state and the federal level. Like do your homework on who's um, up for elections for judges, for the library <laughs> board, for your local school boards. It's really, it's, I think it's really important that everyone be very, very informed uh, and know who's going to be representing you and making big, you know, policy and resource allocation uh, decisions. Um, and also, I think, you know, there are just so many great nonprofits um, and advocacy organizations out there. So find the ones whose mission really resonates with what you care about. Um, and then do what you can to support them. Um, and you um, might be able to do some volunteer work for them, um, but you also might be able to support them through donations. And I will say as someone who has served and is serving on a number of nonprofit boards, um, a large number of small donations adds up to make a difference. So even if you're a student or you know you don't you don't have um, extra money right now to uh, make uh, a, a sizable donation to an organization you care about who's working on the issues that you care about, Again, every every little bit helps, and it definitely adds up. Thank you. Um, and I I wanted to ask, what does Women's History Month mean to you? Well, I think I think history is really important. It's just it's really important to understand the issues of the day from a historical perspective because they didn't just arise you know, all of a sudden, I mean, and any kind of issue that we're, we're facing, and certainly from a public policy perspective, um, has a long history behind it. And history does kind of circle back and tend to repeat itself sometimes too. So it's really important to, to understand, um, you know, the, the history of the, the issues of the day that you really care about. Um, I'm, I'm old enough to, <laughs> Um, no, um, in some important ways that things have have changed a lot for women in, in the United States. I'll tell you one, one quick story. Um, when I was a senior in high school, and I'll admit that was in the late 1970s, um, my guidance counselor refused to send my transcripts to the colleges I had applied, applied to because he said, quote, it would be a waste of my father's money for me to go to college since I would just end up probably getting married and not working anyway. So why do I, why do I need a college degree? And, you know, 
I didn't put up with that, you know, and so it didn't really matter to me, but I saw how it affected other of my classmates. And it wasn't uncommon at that time for females to be steered away from going to college or making investments in their, themselves because it was felt like that, you know, that the payoff wasn't going to be um, great enough for that uh, anyway. So at a societal level, people like me who are older know that there's been many gains in women's educational attainment and um, economic opportunities and career opportunities. Uh, and that's great. And, and I don't think those gains should be taken for granted. And certainly because there does continue to be backlash and widespread discrimination and violence against women and girls in the U.S. and also worldwide. And again, we're seeing right now um, the assault on reproductive freedom and, and, and rights for women. Um, and also from the point of view of intersectionality or thinking, uh, thinking about um, women and gender, also including other social identities like race and ethnicity and immigration status, et cetera. Um, we, we know that women of color have and continue to have a very different experience in the United States. And then internationally, of course, you know, we could we could talk about this for a long time, the hard fought gains and the rights and the life experiences of girls and women and people from sexual minority groups are having a, a terrible regression, uh, again, in rights now in, in many countries, including Iran, Afghanistan, South Sudan, just to name a few. So I know, you know, myself and a lot of other people care about these issues throughout the entire year. But I think Women's History Month is, is a time where we all should do a bit more reflection about the ever-changing and tenuous nature of gender-based violence and discrimination in the world, and the important role that public policy reform and the legal codification of rights for all people, uh, the important role that that change uh, plays in historical change. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Lance. As the podcast comes to a close, what is one thing you hope listeners remember from our conversation today? Well, again, you know, I'm a, I'm a policy person. Um, and so um, I do think it's important to say and acknowledge and embrace the fact that um, there's no black and white in, in public policy. These are complex issues and um, public policy is always based, based on values, right? So I clearly have my own op opinions about um, issues, including about abortion policy, but I don't assume that everyone, and including students who take courses with me, um, I don't assume that everyone agrees with me or that, uh, that I'm right and you're wrong. Um, and one reason I like being in the field of public policy is that there is always debate. Um, there's debate about how are we defining the problem? There's debate about what's the right policy reform or policy solution going, going forward. So the, I guess the main point I'd want to leave the listeners with is that um, it's important to be informed. Um, and that includes um, talking to and listening to people who have opinions who are different from your own. Um, we can all learn a lot from just opening our minds and um, discussing these tough issues with people who have opposing views from our own. Uh, and then um, 
hopefully we do learn from each other. Um, and um, I think that's the only way we're going to move forward. Um, you know, on again, these really complex issues, not everyone sort of in their own camp. I'm right, you're wrong, nobody budging, but we have to we have to figure out how to better communicate and find where we do agree on values and goals and how policy reform can reflect that. Wonderful, thank you for sharing this information with us today and taking the time to talk with me. I greatly appreciate it. It's a pleasure, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.